This morning's passage is one familiar to most of us if we have been around in church. It is as iconic as the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. It's known as the woman at the well. It's a long story. It's the longest narrative story in the New Testament. A story told about a woman who has no name from a, a land of full of people that the Jews considered apostate and heretics, and about a, a woman who has a suspicious past. Since it's such a long story, I'll be reading from the message version. It won't follow along exactly on your screens, but um, uh, I suggest you listen to it rather than try to read along, but you're free to do what you feel uh, you would like. Reading from the first verse of chapter 4 through verse 42. Let us pray. Oh God, be for us a word that we are able to hear and in hearing to do in Christ's name, amen. Jesus realized that the Pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed. Although his disciples, not Jesus, did the actual baptizing. They had posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. So Jesus left the Judean countryside and went back north to Galilee. To get there, he had to pass through Samaria. He came to Sychar, Shechem, a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down at the well. It was noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. The Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews in those days wouldn't be called dead talking to Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you fresh living water. The woman said, sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with and this well is deep, so how are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob who dug this well and drank from it? He and his sons and livestock and passed it down to us. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. Anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. For the water I give will be an artesian spring within gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty, won't even ever have to come back to this well again. He said, go call your husband, then come back. I have no husband, she said. Nicely put, I have no husband. 
In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth, sure enough. Oh, she said, so you're a prophet. Well, tell me this, our ancestors worshiped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place for worship, right? Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You're, you worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews first, but the time is coming. It has in fact come when what you were called to be will not matter what you are and where you go to worship will not matter either. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for, those who are simply and honestly themselves before God in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit, and those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. The woman said, I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming and when he arrives, we'll get the whole story. I am he, said Jesus. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. Just then his disciples came back and they were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking with that kind of woman. No one said what they were all thinking, but their faces showed it. The woman took the hen and left. And in her confusion, she left her water pot. Back in the village, she told the people, come, see a man who knew all about the things I did, who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they went out to see for themselves. John then inserts here a little theological teaching about, uh, uh, teaching to his disciples about uh, reaping the fruit when it is ripe from whatever uh, 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 field it is in. If it's ready to reap, then, then go ahead and take it. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's the right vineyard or not, referring to the Samaritans who deserve to be part of the kingdom too. Back to the text. Many of the Samaritans from the village committed themselves to Jesus because of the woman's witness. He knew all about the things that I did, she said. He knows me inside and out. They asked Jesus to stay on. So Jesus stayed two days. A lot more people entrusted their lives to him when they heard what he had to say. They said to the woman, we're no longer taking this on your say-so. For we've heard it for ourselves and know it for sure. He's the savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. This woman at the well encounter is iconic. One we have heard either read or preached about more than once. 
But like every text, it needs some contextual work. As I often say, the text without context is a con. We cannot understand the text on its own black and white literalist meaning. We have to understand the context in which it was written. And the way it goes is that hearing that he was under threat by the religious leaders and that they were using Jesus and John to split their followers about who was the, who was the best baptizer, he decided to get out of Jerusalem and to go back to Galilee, his hometown. But the way to get there meant that he had to walk, it was all walking through Samaria north. Samaria, you don't want to go to Samaria. It's the other side of the tracks. Samarians for Jews were the heretics. They were apostate. You never talked to Samaritans. Uh, they were they were unclean people who had their own version of the Bible as well as their own temple and their own way of worshiping. It was kind of Jewish, but in the, in the sense that they were Jew-ish, if you know what I mean, not Jewish. They were not the righteous people, but the unrighteous ones, as opposed to the righteous people in Jerusalem. They walked, as I said, and travel was hard over those roads. Either there were cobblestone Roman roads or mostly there were just dirt cart paths down hills, up hills. It, it was arid often. They were short of water. When they came to Shechem, near the place where Jacob had given Joseph that plot of land, they found a well there, Jacob's well. So being that it was about noon in the heat of the day, Jesus sat down to recline while sending on his, his disciples to find food for lunch. While reclining, a Samaritan woman walks up with her jar of water. She was alone, which is unusual. And that she was there at noon is unusual. The woman of the town would always go together, as in every town either in the morning or in the afternoon. She being single meant that she had been excommunicated from the women of the town. And she had to go at noon where she wouldn't run into anyone in the heat of the day. Seeing her walk up alone, Jesus surprisingly and against custom speaks to her. He asks for water. In the first place in culture in those days, a Jew does not speak to a Samaritan. In the second place, Jesus is asking someone for water twice in Gospel of John. This is the first one, an unnamed woman of Samaria. And the second one is of an unnamed soldier as Jesus lies dying on the cross when he looks down and says, I am thirsty. Those are the two times. In the third place, most surprisingly, a strange man does not speak to a strange woman no matter who you are or where you are from. It is considered forward and an insult. When I was in Jerusalem in 1998, thanks to Tom and Ann Cousins, good Presbyterians from Atlanta, who underwrote the trip for young Presbyterians, I think they still do in fact, 15 of us 
uh, all gathered together at this place called the Tantor Ecumenical Institute as our home base, and we foraged out from there in a Palestinian-driven uh, bus. And uh, the first day there, I got up early, um, as you often do, because you're all whacked out for time, and I, I knew we were only a mile or so from Bethlehem, where the Tantor Institute was, and so I walked up to the second floor flat roof, uh, which was a viewing spot, and looked over uh, from where we were in actual Jerusalem proper, across the checkpoint, the Jewish checkpoint, into Palestinian Bethlehem to see if I could see the Church of the Nativity, and I could see the spire where I was, but that was all. I wanted to see the little town of Bethlehem my first day there. We ended up going there, of course. Um, but after that, I came down from the roof, and as I'm walking back to the institute, I noticed two Palestinian women coming around the side of the building, sort of sneaky-like, with their hajib covering their heads, uh, and it occurred to me that they were avoiding the checkpoint because I had heard that checkpoints take up about an hour of your time, and they were simply trying to go to their jobs, probably somebody's housekeeper, a Jewish person's housekeeper, and they didn't want to have to waste the time in checkpoint. So they're coming, coming through Bethlehem around the Tantor Institute, and I'm a southern man, you know, I'm a, my, my mama raised me to be a gentleman, and as they're walking, I said, good morning, Salim. And they put their heads down and began to ran, run, run. They ran literally uh, from as fast as they could, as far away as they could from me. And that sort of surprised me. So I told the head of the institute that I'd just uh, spoken to these two Palestinian women, and he goes, what did you say? <laughs> I said, good morning, and uh, Salim. And, and they, they looked scared. He goes, well, you better be glad that their father or their brother was not with them, because if so, they would have taken you and forced you to marry one of them, <laughs> because you speaking to them was as much as asking them to marry you in their custom. Don't open your mouth to women that are Palestinian or even Jewish if you don't know what you're doing. I got that. That's probably good advice in most cases, by the way. Um, but I learned my lesson. But in Jesus' day, it was even more true. The custom was you do not speak to a Samaritan or a woman, especially when you're a single man in the, in the face of a single woman. So here is Jesus, alone with the woman, Samaritan, did I say she was Samaritan? A Samaritan woman, estranged from her people, and he not only speaks to her, he asks her to serve him. And she responded, which is surprising. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Now Jesus being Jesus in John, because John adds a lot of stuff to the story, theological stuff. Uh, Jesus being Jesus in John and never misses the chance to speak metaphorically and symbolically and theologically about the kingdom of God and what God is doing in the world. So John has Jesus say to her, if you knew about God's gifts and who I am, I am, get that, who I am, then you would know that I am 
who I am because God has called me. I am the great I am. If you knew who I am and you were asking me for a drink, you would have asked me and he would have given you living water instead. There's a passage in Exodus when Moses is called to go free the people of Israel and he's going and he's keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro and he's walking past this bush and it ignites, it's the burning bush and God and Moses asks, here's this voice and Moses says, who is it? And God says, uh, what's your, and he says, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. That's not the Popeye phrase, by the way. That's the God phrase. I am who I am, which is to say, I will be who I will be. That's as good as you get. And what John is saying, theologians say, scholars say, John has seven I am sayings in John. I am the bread of life. I am the gatefold. I am the word, so forth. I count nine, by the way. But uh, who's counting? This is one of the nine they don't count. It's clear to me that Jesus is saying, I am the presence of God. Sir, you don't have any bucket. How are you going to give me living water, she asks. Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? And again, John goes to kingdom metaphors. Everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty, for what I will give will be like a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. She's still stuck in the literal, says, Sir, give me this water. I will never be thirsty again if you give it, and, and, and I don't have to keep coming back here to draw it out. This is the moment. This is, the, this is the moment of disclosure. This is where she's hooked. Jesus, Jesus is offering her not water, but the water of love, compassion, trust, fellowship, inclusion, humanity. This is the moment where Jesus' encounter with this woman who was an outsider in every possible way breaks her heart, cracks her shell, changes her life. She is now born again, to use that term. She changes and the circumstances of her life change. For at this moment of invitation, of the waters of eternal life, she is about to see that Jesus knows her better than she knows herself and sees right through her. You ever been seen like that? He sees right through her. He knows everything about her, her predicament. I have no husband, she says, I know that. You've had five husbands, Jesus says, and the man you're with now is not your husband. And we interpret this to say, well, she was one of those women, you know, one of those women, woman at the well. She doesn't have a name. She just knows what she is. And the reason so is because it not necessarily says that she's up to something. But since men have interpreted this for 2,000 years, and this shows you where men's brains are and their minds are, she must have been a harlot. It doesn't say that. 
She could have been widowed five times, and the man she was living with could have been her brother, or a father, or a friend with no conjugal expectations. Why is it we do that? You see, a woman had no power back then. Unless they were connected to a man, they had no power. They had to have a husband. And every time she married, maybe they died and she had to remarry. Maybe, maybe she knew that if she wasn't connected to a man, she would be completely out. Who knows? She knew that she had to have a relationship with a man to survive. Jesus knows that. He sees right through her. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter a bit. Regardless of any of it, she is offered the living water of Jesus' love. Now, if you've ever been in that moment when something so radically vulnerable happens, typically you change the subject. I remember several times while helping counsel people we come to that moment and then they say something like, can you tell me more about how the steeple got built here? Um, uh, because it's, it's just too close and they need some distance. She changes the subject. I see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say the place we have to worship is in Jerusalem. She goes to geography and history because it's safer than the fault lines of her own life. And he responds again with metaphor. It's not about where you worship or who's doing it. It doesn't matter if it's Samaria or Jerusalem. It doesn't matter. Time will come that what matters is to worship God in integrity and authenticity, in spirit and in truth. She's still stuck in the literal, although she's had this moment. And she hears Jesus forecasting the coming again of the Messiah. And she says, well, I know the Messiah is coming and he'll proclaim all things to us. And Jesus says again, I am, I am he. Can you imagine those two there standing soul to soul and eye to eye and face to face alone in that unbelievable moment of complete vulnerability and love, ultimate connection, and she knows that this one before her sees right through her and knows her completely and still loves her. The moment's broken when the disciples come back. They are shocked to see Jesus talking with this single woman. They don't say anything, but you can see it on their faces. Seeing the cue, the woman leaves the water drawer at the well and runs off back to town. And she is so filled up by this moment that, that, that she just goes around and tells everybody that I have met this man who knows everything about me and what I have done and he still, and he still comforted and loved me. And, and she was able to tell it in such a way because they see she's been transformed that they, began to, that they believed her for the first time and they followed her out back to the well to see who he was. And when they, when they encountered him, they invited him back to their homes for two days. In my father's house are many mansions, John says, 
in the 14th chapter. Mansions for Samaritans, women at the well, and everybody else. The great surprise is that this woman, this unnamed Samaritan, suspicious, questionable woman, ends up being the, the evangelist who converts her town. Whew. Have you ever had an encounter like this? Anybody, much less Jesus. Ever been seen by someone who you know sees right through you? Sees you for who you truly are? Not the facade, not the, not the fakeness, but the truth of who we are. Sees us better even than we see. Our, have you ever had that moment? Parents, hopefully, can give that to their children. My mother saw through me. She had eyes in the back of her head. She would know what I was doing 50 miles away. She still loved me. I would not say unconditionally because in my Sunday school class I said humans aren't capable of loving unconditionally. We all have conditions, but she came as close as anybody. She loved us all deeply in spite of who we were. She saw through us and she loved us still. Con men and women can do it. Confidence men and women. They can size you up in a minute and see through you enough to know if you're a quick mark and a victim that quick. What's interesting to me is they're so good at it, how come we're not better? Because we get suckered in all the time by these con men thinking that they are of spirit and truth, whether it's I don't know, TV personalities at night, I'll let you fill in the blanks, or preachers, or politicians. They see through us and laugh at us, but we take them seriously. <clears throat> what about Facebook? I'm going to put all my pictures of my perfection, my life doing well on Facebook, and people are going to see through me, and I'm going to get all the likes I can get, and the more likes I get, the more they see me for who I am and the better I feel about myself. And that's not bad enough. What it's gotten to now is you start putting all your bad stuff on Facebook. The more stupid and vulnerable you are and share, the more likes you get. I don't get it. Have you ever had an intimate encounter with somebody that sees through you like Jesus saw through her? And know, and know that in their seeing through you that you are loved to the core in spite of everything. Have you ever had that? She did. When I was in fourth grade, I mentioned I'd gone to a school because the school I was in in Dilworth had just gotten integrated. And while my parents weren't overtly racist, they were born in the South and it was just probably part of their, their blood. And so they thought that if African-Americans or black people, they didn't use that word back then, but they didn't use the bad N word, it was just the Negro word. 
they would, that if Negroes are there, they said, then maybe education will fall and therefore we need to transfer you to Myers Park Elementary, which is over in the ritzy part of town in Charlotte. And I was out of my league. I got there in fourth grade and I didn't know anybody and wasn't a great student to begin with. And, and I wasn't popular because I was, you know, for a lot of reasons, one of which is I was the outsider from the other side of the tracks. So uh, also I had buck teeth and yet had braces. I was kind of tall and gangly and I wasn't a great student and I was always acting up. And Mrs. Johnson, my fourth grade teacher, was able to see through me enough to know that I had what would probably be now called ADD. And she said, Steve, I want you to be in charge. You're the, you're the audio visual person in the class. You need to set up the projectors and everything we're doing because she saw that energy in me. And she saw something in me that I didn't know I had. She gave me some confidence. And in the end of the year, when they start giving out all the awards and we're at the auditorium and everybody's in there and they're giving out the awards for the superlatives and you know the president, upcoming president of the class and the vice president, uh, that, would be, that would be Ed Pease and the vice president would be Emily Wheatley and, and, and the secretary would be Ed Halls. They get all mentioned, and they, they get also most likely to succeed going into fifth. They again, went all the superlatives, Ed Pease, Emily Wheatley, Ed Hall. Not that I remember their names. And, <laughs> and they're just, it's like this constant process of them, and not only those three, but other superlative kids in the class, they just keep going up there. And then they came to calling on the safety patrol. Usually they'd take, I don't know, eight or 10 people out of every class. There were three fourth grade classes they'd take and we would be the safety patrol. And uh, that's what the point was. Ed Pease called, Ed Halls called, Emily Wheatley called, and up, and up, and up. I got down to eight or nine. I'm trying to slink deeper and deeper into my chair, you know, feeling completely unknown and, and unloved. And then I hear Steve Goyer. And it was an out-of-body experience. <laughs> Mrs. Johnson, my fourth grade teacher, saw right through me and saw something in me worth redeeming. And I walked up there and got my badge and my belt, and it was the proudest moment I'd ever had in my life, because I felt like I was somebody. I was a great safety patrol person. <laughs> I made it to sergeant. There were only two sergeants. Ed Pease and Emily Wheatley were captain and, <laughs> and lieutenant. You ever, had a, you ever had a moment like that? If you haven't, you will. Either in this life or in the next. You will come face to face with the I am of God's love and we will know that he knows us completely and sees us enough that we are enough. Maybe it's now. If not, when?